new science? Is it a unified discipline with a single method and history? Or is it a collection of diverse practices that can vary greatly in how they developed and how they determine knowledge? My guest on today's episode of the HBS podcast is Dr. Christiane Camilleri, Senior Lecturer in the History and Philosophy of Science program at the University of Melbourne, and more importantly, Primary Supervisor on my PhD. Christiane is a historian of physics, author of the book Heisenberg and the Interpretation of Quantum Mechanics, The Physicist as Philosopher, as well as an outstanding lecturer teaching such fabulous subjects as Plato to Einstein, God and the Natural Sciences, and the Dynamics of Scientific Change. Today on the podcast, Christiane will be discussing the concept of the disunity of science. Hi, Christiane, and welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on. Thanks for having me. Before we discuss the topic of the day, could you begin by telling us a little bit about how you came to history and philosophy of science? Yeah, that's that's an easy one. Um, I initially enrolled in a Bachelor of Science at the University of Melbourne with an intention of majoring in physics, which I did do. Um, but in my first year, I was very eager to take a history of astronomy subject run through the history and philosophy of science uh, department as it was then. And I just sort of fell in love with HPS and um, decided after taking a couple more subjects that I would add it as a second major to my Bachelor of Science. At the end of my three, which stretched out to four years, um, I deliberately overloaded so I could do lots and lots of history and philosophy of science subjects. I had a decision to make and it was really in the end a no-brainer. I decided to pursue history and philosophy of science further study. I did honours and then eventually did a PhD. What was it about history and philosophy of science that you fell in love with? Ah, that's a good question. So initially it was that it asked the sorts of questions that I hoped would be answered in a science degree but was finding weren't. Uh, And secondly, um, I found myself drawn to history in a way that I had never been in high school. It um, it's perhaps ironic that if I reflect back on my high school years, the subject I hated most was history. I couldn't imagine anyone would find chronicling dry and dusty events from the past as uh, something intellectually stimulating and enlivening. But when I got to study some history of science, and I should also point out I had really good teachers. Um, Keith Hutchison was the, was the lecturer. He would eventually be my supervisor, my doctoral dissertation supervisor. And Neil Thomason, who taught philosophy of science back then, were incredibly uh, good teachers, very giving of their time, but also um, they made the subject matter really come alive in a dramatic way. And I was hooked. Yeah, yeah. excellent. And you said um, there were certain questions that came up in HBS that didn't come up in science that you were interested in. Can you remember what kind of questions they, they were? were? They were questions of a philosophical nature. So, and this will be, I suspect, true of a number of um, science students. I can only speak as a budding physics student. Questions like what's energy, right? So you, you learn, of course, in physics how to use the concept of energy in a mathematical formal sense. You learn the conservation of energy, you learn um, the laws of thermodynamics. But there are certain philosophical questions that just have to go unanswered as you work your way through the syllabus. Philosophy of science tends to reflect carefully on such questions. Um, you might think, well, you can just give a, a, a rough and ready definition 
But what happens is that if once you ask a simple question, it opens up a Pandora's box of epistemological and metaphysical questions. And I found that really uh, attractive and um, something that I, I warmed to. I should point out that, that those were philosophical questions, but increasingly through my degree, I found myself gravitating towards history, though I have always tried to strike something of a balance um, between the history and the philosophy. Now, my personal view is that they, the two can be done well together, though it is, a, it is an effort. Absolutely. I'm also interested to know what you see as the central value of HPS then as an academic field. Yeah. What does it bring? Uh, well, I think um, <clears throat> let's break that question into two. For science students uh, or for those interested in studying the sciences, whether uh, as a part of another degree or as their central uh, major, uh, history and philosophy of science opens them up to a deeper understanding of the way their work as budding, aspiring young scientists fits into the wider world. Um, it also might help probe some of those deeper philosophical and historical questions. How we have come to have science in this way, we, it certainly hasn't been always this way. Once upon a time, the most respected parts of the university were certainly not the natural sciences. They were theology and philosophy, and that's far from the case today. No disrespect to those enduring disciplines. How has it come to pass that science occupies the very important place it does in modern society? That then gets me to the second part. What value might it be to someone studying the arts and humanities? If it is the task of the humanities to understand the world in which we live, science and technology and medicine, uh, as I've suggested already, have a very important uh, role in that world. And what you often find is, while if you do a um, subjects in history or politics or sociology, you get a brilliantly rich uh, view of those disciplines, the science is sort of left out of the picture. Here, history and philosophy of science, which includes sociology of science and technology, I think fills a very important gap in people's understanding. So for both science students and for art students, and of course for anyone else interested, I think it's a very important subject. Mm, absolutely. Okay, so turning to the topic of the day, can you tell us about the concept of interest that you've chosen to discuss? Yes, I've suggested I'll talk a little about the disunity of science. So this is a, an idea that got a lot of traction some years back, perhaps the 1990s, if my memory serves me correctly. It began to dawn on scholars, uh, historians and philosophers of science that this thing we call science was actually not one thing. It's very easy, of course, to imagine that it is. Uh, we have faculties named after it. Um, we label certain disciplines as sciences, but not others. But as one reflected, it became increasingly evident that it is a proteus. Uh, it changes form. It, it doesn't have a universal essence to it. Now, of course, uh, the listener will think, but of course it does. There's a scientific method. Um, it, there's, a, there's a preoccupation with empirical uh, information. It, it's all based on experiential knowledge. This may well be true, and I wouldn't doubt, I wouldn't deny that, 
But the way in which the sciences go about their business turns out to be rather different. Or if I might put it this way, I'm fascinated with the differences between the sciences rather than what they might all have in common, though that's clearly important. So just to give you a sense, the kind of world that a conservation biologist works in, the kind of values that inform their work, the kind of methods, uh, the kind of uh, research questions and how they fit into a wider picture will be very, very different from someone who works at the Large Hadron Collider as a particle physicist. This, is, uh, this sounds obvious when I say it like this, but probing more deeply the disunity of the sciences actually is very interesting because the very object of study history and philosophy of science is of course science but it turns out to be a very slippery concept when you broaden your horizons Mm. this is also something that most science students won't get much um, exposure to sadly and increasingly that's is this is a critical um, lacuna something missing in their education because they'll only be um, disciplined in one of the sciences and they may get the mistaken impression this is how science is. This can be a problem because if they uh, have in, later in their careers to work with other scientists from other disciplines, there are real and um, documented barriers to that based on having a single model of science to work with. So mm. it has actually practical import. It's not just an ivory tower philosophical question. So the disunity of science is the one that I'm interested in. So could you expand a little on those distinctions between the idea of unity of science, perhaps, on one hand, and the disunity of science? How do they differ? Yeah, so the unity of science has been cashed out in a number of different ways. One of the old ways was the notion of a scientific method. Uh, And you'll, of course, if anyone Googles it, you'll find um, a number of references and some nice pictures about the cyclical scientific method. But I would invite the listener to look a bit closer and research a bit more widely. You'll find competing and varying views of the scientific method. And it's not hard to come up with counterexamples. So, for instance, hypothesis testing is a fairly standard view of the scientific method. But it's not one that you'll find uh, undertaken by a protein crystallographer. So let me give you an example. A protein crystallographer... Let's, let me be clear, really important science. It works out the structure. Protein crystallographers work out the structure of molecules. And we're talking about super complex um, macromolecules that might have thousands of atoms in them. They actually have to work out the three-dimensional spatial position of all those atoms. No one in their right mind comes up with a hypothesis and then tests it. it would it be impossible even to articulate such a hypothesis? It is a much more interesting uh, uh, process of gradually piecing together the various uh, parts and structures of the molecule based on, of course, a deep understanding of uh, biochemistry, but not a small amount of trial and error as well. So there's just one example, but I could give dozens. The scientific method has turned out to just break down upon closer inspection. Of course, this is not to say hypothesis testing doesn't go on. Any psychologist will tell you it's the bread and butter. But if you look across the sciences, you'll find a much richer, diverse picture. That's one uh, contrast between the unity of science and what I'm calling the disunity of science. 
Other ways you might look at it is the histories of the various sciences. So we tend to have this picture, and it is even one that we as historians of science might be guilty of perpetuating, that science sort of evolved out of one trunk of a tree, like philosophy, and all the sciences sort of sprouted off as different branches. This is a very old idea. You can find it in the French philosopher René Descartes. The actual historical record suggests something much more complex and different. Certain sciences, certain disciplines we would call science today, had much more complex histories, which probably, if we look away from physics and natural philosophy and we look at uh, other areas like ecology, did not sprout off from some central branch. In other cases, they had more. Uh, they had their origins lay more with um, trade practices, right? And so the disunity of science is also reflected in the complex histories. And I'm not saying those sciences now don't interact with one another; they clearly do. But a much richer picture emerges rather than this simple forking or branching tree that we we often have at the back of our minds. Mm. Mm. Oh, absolutely. I understand there's also a link between the idea of the disunity of science and how best to consider, say, Indigenous and traditional knowledge systems. Could you tell us something about that? Yes. I'm someone who's very interested in all knowledge systems, traditional and Indigenous knowledge systems. And there's been a push in recent years to, and I think a very good one, one I would throw my weight behind and support wholeheartedly, to examine what we would call modern science alongside other forms of knowledge. In fact, there are, in some quarters, a push to include Indigenous knowledge within the teaching of science. It's a, it's a controversial idea. If you bring my thesis, it's not mine, of course, but the thesis I've been discussing of the disunity of science, then this notion that there are Indigenous knowledges and something monolithic called Western science is actually going to be an obstacle to a better understanding of how these different knowledges work together. To take my example from earlier, the conservation biologist and the particle physicist, there's no question that the conservation biologist is going to have a better conversation with a traditional a custodian of the land in, in Australia than a particle physicist. I don't even need to go into that in any depth. I'm sure the listener can appreciate that for themselves. And so to call everything that we do science actually betrays all these important differences. N not only that, the way we usually characterise science as a single monolithic entity is often derived from our understanding of physics. Now, I'm a historian of physics, but I cannot see how that ex extrapolates very well um, to lots of, lots of other sciences. Um, and so uh, what happens is we end up with these glib, um, cliched views which actually don't help the practical matter of dealing with um, interactions between different knowledge systems very well. And uh, in the interests of pursuing that project a little further, I think one of the important things one has to bear in mind is that science comes in many shapes and forms uh, and different shapes and different forms might have more going for them in a, in a dialogue with traditional knowledge systems than others. Okay, and so can you tell us a little bit more about how the disunity of science fits in with philosophy of science? Right, so 
there are many, many important questions in the philosophy of science. One would be, how does an explanation work in science? So for a long time, of course, using physics as the exemplar science, which all other sciences mimic in some way, we would think that um, it's a covering law. It's a, it's a, you reduce everything to laws. And most people, when they're not thinking about it, say that's what science does. Science describes a lawful, ordered world, and it's our job to understand what those laws are and how they, how they work in very complex situations. Not to deny that's the case, there is also a historical way, for example, of explaining things. So, to use the historical maxim, to understand something is to understand how it came to be like that. So, you can apply this to galaxies, mountains, human beings, the emergence of a new species. Now, when you're explaining the coming into being of a mountain range... You do have to use regularities, you know, there are things about rocks and um, the surface of the earth that you have to understand, but it's also a highly contingent one-off. This particular mountain range has this particular configuration. And that's even more the case in evolutionary explanations, right? There are very contingent historical circumstances that led to the emergence of a particular species, uh, environmental concerns, etc., etc., in this sense, those explanations actually look a lot more like explanations that we historians give for something like the rise of the Roman Empire or what brought about the First World War. Explanations, not just methods, but the form that explanations take actually vary greatly across the sciences. There are those that sceptical of some of the things science, the scientists say, who will point to universal forms of explanation and methods in order to be sceptical of what certain sciences say. So they'll say, well, it's clear that climate science doesn't operate by the usual hypothetico-deductive method, positing hypotheses and testing them. And so that's a reason to be incredibly sceptical of those sciences or what they tell us about the world. But what, once you appreciate the richness and diversity of uh, forms of explanation and methods, you begin to see those uh, arguments carry very little water. That would bring down science in total. Is there a concern there that when you go down the disunity route, where does it all disappear to? Right. Potentially so some undermine science? Absolutely. Some people fear that the, the borderline between science and non-science may just dissolve away altogether. Um, I'm not struck by that fear, if it turns out linguistics fits all the conditions of a science, I'm happy to call it a science. And in fact, in, in other, uh, other languages, the word science actually encompasses far more than it does in the English uh, use of the word. This does not mean everything becomes a science. Rather, that all the sciences have their own rigorous, systematic ways of going about knowledge. And I'd add one more thing to this, if I might, Samara. Often, the ways of acquiring knowledge, in my view, are very dependent on the objects of knowledge. So, if you're studying the nervous system, you need to find a method that gets to grips with this very elusive but complicated structure. You might need to perform experiments. If you're dealing with the interior of a star, you cannot use the same methods or explanations. What has happened historically, in my view, is that the various sciences latching onto these 
almost infinite number of possible objects you could study, have found their own way and found ways to get better. To quote Dudley Shapir's famous phrase, we learn how to learn, but I would only add to that, in different domains that turns out to look different. Of course, one can just speak nonsense about any subject matter, but the sciences have matured each in their own way, and they should, in my view, be given a degree of autonomy in the way they have historically formed uh, ways of getting to grips with their various domains of study. Are there perhaps downsides that you can see with looking at science in this sort of disunity kind of form? Potentially, potentially. uh, That's a tricky question. Of course, there are a number of, let's call them disciplines or nascent areas of study, which would like to proclaim themselves as sciences, and they could well exploit the disunity thesis and say, well, you accept there are a plurality of methods and explanations, why don't you admit these ones? And we might look upon them rather suspiciously. They don't seem very rigorous. They don't seem grounded in empiricism. So that may well be a problem. I'm more of a pragmatic bent. I think you treat every every claim on its merits. Um, I am not suggesting there is absolutely nothing that all the sciences have in common. One would be they all pursue knowledge in one form or another. So that that's not in question. I'm only suggesting that there are really interesting differences which make a difference. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Well, that leads well onto my next question. One thing I've noticed from my own studies in HBS is that you do quickly develop quite a different, more complex, and I would say compelling image of science in general by studying HPS. So how would you see the disunity of science relating to perhaps a more accurate image of science more generally? Yeah, I think we are sort of seized by the singular model, what's called the singular model in the literature. And so every time we reflect on science sociologically, historically, philosophically, uh, in, in just public discourse, we, we happily use the word and the word often betrays a lack of understanding. This can be problematic. So, for instance, one might say science never operates with any value system, any social or political values, and that would be a good thing. But it would be hard to say that's actually true of conservation biology, which clearly has a mission informed by certain values, values many of us might support. We also often speak of science and technology, right? But it's hard to see much technology coming out of evolutionary biology. I mean, yes, genetics, definitely, but I'm talking about the deep past. What tends to happen is we kind of slip into these big labels, and I'm talking about public discourse, not you know what academics might do at the university, And this is problematic. This is problematic because what happens is everyone gets tarred with the same brush. Um, And even a slightly more nuanced picture along the lines I've been describing, I think, would be very helpful for public discourse. Mm. Yeah. Mm. No, absolutely. And for a general listener, how can it help them better understand science in a more complex way in this contemporary world? Not succumbing to the tendency to overgeneralise and think that one size fits all is already a good first step. Even a political critique of science, you know, science has led to, let's be honest, a number of problems in the modern world. But even saying that, um, you know, has biology participated in those problems? Um, When casting blame and looking for solutions for real world problems... Um, a more nuanced view of the variegated nature of science is incredibly helpful. 
Fabulous. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, I wanted to say thank you for joining me today, Christiane. I've thoroughly enjoyed the discussion. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to the first season of the HBS podcast, where we discuss all things history, philosophy and social studies of science. To learn more, check out our website at hbsunimelb.org. There you can also find links to our blog, Twitter, Facebook and Insta, as well as show notes for today's topic. I'm Samara Greenwood and my co-producer is Indigo Keel. We look forward to having you back again next time.